I am J.A. Lovelock. Welcome back to part two of my fascinating conversation with crime scene investigator Kate Bendelow. So you mentioned before um, things like DNA, footwear, trace evidence. Is this part of what you do? Is that fingerprinting and all that sort of thing? Fingerprinting, yeah. yeah. Fingerprints as well. So we carry fingerprint kits. So we do conventional fingerprint um, examination at exams. Um, the other thing we'll do fingerprint-wise is if, for example, so last week one of the items I recovered from the car was a um, fast food wrapper. Um, which I knew people who had access to the vehicle, we had a receipt there. I knew it had been bought around the time of the offence. So whoever's committed that offence and been in that car has had access to that fast food wrapper. It was understandably greasy. So um, rather than using any conventional fingerprint powders, what I've done is sent it over to um, our laboratory, which are in-house to put there's various chemical treatments, such as an anhydrin, which you can use on there. And it's basically a colour dye and it works best with fats and stuff like that. So the chemicals will then enhance any ridge detail or fingerprint marks. So yeah, again, fingerprint evidence is one of our main go-to that we'll always, always be searching for. But pretty much every day is spent, sorry, pretty much every day is spent each each crime scene. You're looking for one of those evidence types, as many evidence types as you can recover. Mm. And footwear, how do you gather evidence on footwear? So this gets me, I'll get quite excited about footwear. So <laughs> the various ways we recover it is we can photograph it, we can cast it. So basically we have um, like a plaster of Paris type mix that we can put very crudely described, pour into any moulds of this footwear marking soil or, or that sort of stuff. We can recover it that way. Um, we can use um, the fingerprint powders that we have. We can use various fingerprint powders depending on the surface it's on to enhance the footwear mark. And then again, it can be photographed and there's various ways that we can lift it. We have something called a gel lift, which will basically sort of take a facsimile, if you like, of the foot. Uh, the, we basically peel it onto the footwear mark, peel it away again, and then the image is, is caught by the powder. So footwear marks, one of the things you look for the most, because whether it's a burglary or a murder scene, a lot of people will, you know, you can cover your hands, but there's not really much you can do about your, your sort of your, your, your footwear if you've got to walk in and out of a place. And so although there might be thousands and thousands of that particular type of shoe mark that you recover from a scene, what makes it evidential value is the particularly the old the footwear is. It leaves a more unique wear and tear on the sole, and that's what makes that footwear mark unique. So although we could say, right, well, that's, for example, a Reebok classic. Obviously, there's thousands and thousands of them out in the world, but not many will have the same indentations. of. And this is particularly the case with burglars, because obviously they're climbing over fences, climbing over broken glass and stones. So they get a lot of unique indentations in the sole of the shoe and that's what we look for. I watched a crime show last night, one of those crime shows, and they talked were talking about footwear. They said I mean you mentioned indentation, but sort of the way your person walk, you can tell yeah, so by gate, yeah. yeah gate analysis, that's another big thing. Dr. Hayden Kelly is one of the UK specialists in, in sort of footwear and gait analysis in particular. And I know he spends a lot of time working with um, police forces and he can tell looking one of the things he'll do, for example, is look at somebody's um, CCTV footage and offender of how they walk. When we get an offender shoe as well or a suspect shoe, there's something that we can, we can the scientists can do called um, Cinderella analysis. 
And basically that what that will do is the way we all walk differently in shoes. So, for example, you might be sort of more front ball at your foot bearing or somebody might walk more with the back of the heel. Mm-hmm. And the scientists, when they examine the shoes, can see that indentation. So they can say, again, it's not an exact science, but based on all the other forensic evidence and witness evidence you've got it's another way of putting an individual in a certain pair of shoes and at that crime scene and again like you say gate analysis brilliant now because cctv is everywhere isn't it so that's something that we have now a lot and and to be honest with you not just cctv a lot of my time these days with all the cctv footage can be spent in custody photographing suspects who may be um doing the uh, a lot of linked series burglaries will be wearing the same type of clothing. If there's something quite distinct about that clothing, say a pattern on the sleeve, if there's been various ring doorbell footage or various CCTV footage, and once we get them in custody wearing that coat, I'll go down and photograph it from various angles, and then it can later be compared to that CCTV footage. So very difficult to get away with anything these days. That's absolutely fascinating. I, I, I'm absolutely loving it. And, and, and thanks for sharing that. Um, so that was your work. And as a result of your work, you, you've written a nonfiction book, The Real CSI, a forensic handbook for crime writers. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So basically... I um, I went to a um, writer school, Swanwick um, Writer School, um, in two thousand and I think it was two thousand and fourteen, um, because one of the other things I'd always wanted to do was to be a um, a writer. At the time, because my children were quite small, I'd sort of convinced myself that I was going to write children's books and and that sort of stuff, which. Um, quickly transpired it was never going to happen because I'm naturally dark and very very sweary which isn't the sort of thing if you're a parent you would look for in a in a bedtime children's book so anyway I attended the uh, writing school thinking I'll sort of get some idea of where I wanted to go because at the time as well I was doing quite a bit of stand-up performance poetry and that sort of stuff and while I was there um, Derbyshire Police and some officers from Derbyshire Police were giving a talk to the crime writers about how they investigate a murder and it was obviously interesting to watch I sat in it for sort of layman's curiosity to sort of you always want to have a bit of one-upmanship and compare forces to convince yeah my force is better than yours sort of thing and the presentation was fantastic but it gave me a real opportunity to see that I was listening to it as um, a crime writer was and the problem when you're in the police is we use a lot of police speak we use police love acronyms and we use a lot of terminology so although he was providing the right information I could see that it was lost on the crime writers and then spent quite a bit of time after chatting with people and sort of interpreting techniques and methods and rank and terminology that sort of stuff and bearing in mind at this point I've not done other than performance poetry I've not done any form of sort of public speaking or whatever I said I tell you what I'll come back next year and I'll deliver a course for you and I didn't realize how overwhelmingly accepted it was going to be I think I had something like 100 people on the on the course which lasted for an hour over four days 
so an hour each morning for four days. Mm -hmm. So it was very, very well received. And several people suggested you should write a book about this because prime writers will love it and snap Mm -hmm. your hand off. So obviously I'm sort of thinking this is a bit of a cheat this. I want to be a writer and they've got me sort of doing a bit of a busman's holiday. And it was like, well, if it's going to help people, it's worth it. I'll just put a pitch into a publisher, a few publishers, see if there's anybody interested. And yeah, they were. And the publisher I went with was interested. So I wrote the book and it was brilliant because it gave me a real stepping stone sort of into the writing community, doing various writing events, lecturing, meeting other writers. And then um, I contacted a few authors who I loved to say, obviously, I've written this handbook. I'm a huge fan of yours. If ever you feel you need any sort of forensic or crime writing advice, anything like that, then this is my email. Please get in touch. And um, Sherry Lucano was one of the authors who got in touch and has asked me a few questions on various books. And Linda LaPlante also graciously accepted and said, would love to meet you next time you're in London. And I mean, who doesn't want to meet Linda LaPlante? Fortunately, my husband works in London quite a lot. So he was like, right, we'll make an appointment. Next time I'm down there for work, you can come along and tag with me. And wow, I went with the intention of going to meet Linda to help her and it sort of turned around the other way she sort of talked to me about writing by then I decided I wanted to probably write crime fiction although I decided is it a bit of a cliche this that and the other and it was through chatting to Linda she encouraged me to do what my husband had been suggesting for years which is write a crime book whereas your protagonist is a socko and my husband had obviously already suggested this, but I've gone, no, no, that's not going to work. And that's just like, no, people won't take that seriously. But then obviously if Linda LaPlante suggests it, you think, do you know what? Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, my character, Maya Barton, was born on the on the train back home from London to Manchester. Um, she is mid-20s mixed-race character. Um, and one of the reasons as well I wanted to portray Maya as being a mixed-race character was because whilst chatting with Linda, one of the things we were discussing about was how um, there's not enough diversity in, in in writing per se, but I'd say certainly crime fiction mm-hmm. genre, which mm-hmm. is probably one of the biggest genres. And you sort of cannot have that conversation with them without then obviously including mixed-race characters. And it's something I've always been keen to do is include, is to make sure I've got a wide range of diverse characters in my book because they represent the society we live in today. And you just think if it just helps bring down a few challenges, and it has actually provoked a few conversations with people who have read my books and colleagues who are questioning, why have you done this? And it's like, well, why wouldn't you? So that that was another sort of driving force for for the Maya books. But yes, the series as it was then sort of developed from book one. Um, I started writing book one, and I knew how it was going to end. I sort of had an idea of the opening scene, but then I knew nothing about the middle bit, which is quite important when you're writing a book. But I went with it and found I'm not a plotter. I am what we call a pantster. I will just basically sit and write and the characters will tell me what's going to happen. Halfway through Maya book one, I knew what was going to happen at the beginning of Maya book two. But then I didn't know the rest of it. And book three, I didn't have a clue until until I started writing it. And Maya's backstory as well is quite important through the trilogy because she has um, what runs through it is her estranged father is a very very violent criminal who's in prison and he sort of comes back out with work to to haunt her and in book two um he's released and that 
culminates into quite a few tragic events and which then all, all comes to a head in book three. Book three, Maya goes through a series because she's got had quite a lot of psychological trauma in her past. She is diagnosed with PTSD and she goes through a process called EMDR, which I can't tell you what it stands for, um, but it's basically it is a... Um, it is a process for dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. And the reason I wanted to write about that was it's something I experienced myself at work. Um, I was diagnosed with PTSD in 2017 and was referred, thankfully, to an absolutely amazing um, counsellor, psychologist, um, who basically saved my life because at the time I didn't know what was going on. I knew I was having these horrific nightmares that were waking me up and were haunting me all day. I couldn't work. I was just, I was a mess. I sort of was just going through the motions for my kids. And obviously it's natural at that point. I've been in the job so long when people were saying, you know, it's a stress of the job. And I said, none of the bodies or I've ever dealt with have ever given me anything, any reason to feel like this. So basically we went through the uh, EMDR process and it uncovered that the trauma which was affecting me was something that happened several years ago, which actually didn't involve um, a dead body. It was actually a guy I'd been to, asked to go and photograph in the intensive care unit, who'd had his hand macheted off and he was thrashing around in the bed. And the nurse explained to me that he was um, very heavily sedated and the reason he was moaning and thrashing was just his reflexes. Mm. I don't deal very well with people who are ill or upset. Um, it uh, it does affect me more, than, and that's probably why I'm more comfortable with dealing with dead people because nothing can hurt them. But you're trying to find clues that will then give their family some closure. And I, at the time, I remember feeling upset, but I think I buried about I buried obviously how traumatic I found it, and then yeah, by chance, several years down the road, it come back and made me. <laughs> really very very quite ill so it was something horrible which I've, I've gone through which I would never I wouldn't wish on anybody and I, I sort of wanted to write about it in the books because I thought if one person reads this and it helps them or they can associate with it then job done it's just another thing you sort of want to share to give a awareness of really and to highlight it. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that Kate because I was thinking um touched on some of the challenges of, of your job and that's an example yeah what about successes what what could you share with us about successes and being a CSI yeah so successes oh wow I mean even after 22 years if I so much as examine a car or a burglary scene where I get a fingerprint which then later comes back to identify an offender who the offender who has committed that crime, that feeling is like nothing else. And it doesn't just have to be the big jobs like the murders or, you know, that sort of thing. It's the same thrill if it's a burglary and stuff because burglary in particular, it has a massive, massive impact on people. It's a horrible experience. If, God forbid, you ever have been burgled, that feeling of violation it's horrible and it stays with you. And some people go and see a quite matter of fact about it and it doesn't bother them. What really does bother me and upset me is when you go to people's houses where particularly elderly people where it's been like the home where they brought up the children and they've lived there forever and then they sort of, I don't feel safe now. I'm going to sell up and I'm going to move or 
oh, the kids are there saying, come on, Dad, this is a sign now. We need to go move you to sheltered accommodation. And it, mm-hmm. it's it's horrible, the impact it has on people. And I say to them time and time again, I wish you could come into custody with me and see when we get these people locked up, how terrified they are. You, you saw it envisage some guy who's like six foot five, built like a rugby player, you know, carrying like a zombie knife or a machete or a baseball bat. And these, the reality is, they're probably 17-year-old kids who are on drugs or being coerced into mm. doing this by scarier people who are sort of mm. five foot wet, uh, five stone wet through and, you know, just want the mum or the girlfriend when they're locked up. But, yeah, so that is one of the huge successes. Definitely when you find out you've got evidence which can help link an offender, the bigger jobs, if you're, say, looking for blood and you exhaust and you think, no, there's nothing here, and then you find something and it just come back to be victim of blood in offender's house. Those sort of successes are fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Um, there was a case, I can't talk about in much detail, but a very, very nasty rape case that I dealt with many, many years ago. Um, where it transpired that our suspect was a serial sex offender who was targeting sex workers. And he was also a traveling salesman. And they linked him to several other serious, nasty um, attacks on sex workers up and down the country. And getting the forensic evidence we needed to identify him and then having him tracked down and arrested. And he got sent away for a very, very long time. And that's definitely a, a career highlight. It really, really is. Because, again, you, you, you've you gone, you're dealing with the most vulnerable members of society who are not comfortable coming talking to the police because they know how they, well, or they, they think how they're going to be perceived, which is not the case. We will take every case like that seriously, but they were strong enough to speak out, come and speak to us, and we got the evidence we needed, and he was put away where he belongs to be, and that, that's absolute, that's huge highlight of the job. Oh, fantastic. That's really great. My final question, um, going back to your character, Maya, where, where mm. is your where is your story based? So um, I, because I am still employed by my current force, I had to make it sort of fictional, sort of around the northwest of England, just because it, it was a very difficult book to write in so much as, obviously, Maya's a soco and she has to investigate cases. And I had to make sure that the job she was working on bared no resemblance to any real life cases I'd worked on because I was very conscious of the fact I didn't want anyone pointing the finger and going you've worked on my son's case my daughter's case and then you've written about it it is Mm. all purely fictional Mm. but my gosh that was the hardest part of the trilogy was trying to write stuff that was purely fictional obviously the sort of the sequences of how an exam is taking place that's based on on, on what we do mm. um, but yeah so it was written in a fictional sort of northwest town and I don't think at any point other than referring to the police stations there's no actual police force named it's all it's all very very fictional what's what's it called the the police force yes and or the town uh, no, yeah no it's not it's it's just basically so the, the police station's just basically called Beachfield Oh, right. So, it, it, and then all the other police stations in the force are then named after trees. So, yeah. It, <laughs> it, <laughs> That was oh, the hardest part of like uh, oh, trying to make yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, that yeah. oh that, that's absolutely amazing. I absolutely love it. Okay, thank you so much 
for coming in today and and sharing your story and talking about your work as a CSI. I absolutely loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's been good fun. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. 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 Thanks for listening. I am J.A. Lovelock. Join us next time as we go behind the yellow tape and catch up with more episodes at btytpodcast.com. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.